Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon, so to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump paints a picture of a president who is a con man, a racist, and a cheat, and not one Republican stands up to defend Donald Trump. They're too busy attacking Michael Cohen. What do you say, everybody? Oh, man, what a day yesterday. And this is the day after, Thursday, February 28th, last day of February. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. And being part of the Bill Press Show, we start out in Washington, D.C., join you everywhere in this great country of ours with all the news of the day. And uh, yesterday, we have seen very few days like it. We had a summit in Hanoi between the president and Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, which abruptly fell apart, ended early, pulled the plug Walked both leaders walking out of there with no nuclear deal, 8,000 miles away, the entire world spotlight, hundreds and hundreds of reporters, everybody watching to see this historic moment, and it was a total failure. On this side of the world, Michael Cohen, blistering testimony about uh, Donald Trump and his uh, misdeeds, if not crimes, Michael Cohen giving physical evidence of crimes committed by Donald Trump while he is was president, uh, already president of the United States. Uh, just an incredible blockbuster seven hours of testimony yesterday in front of the House Oversight Committee. And in the meantime, by the way, Congress passed the first gun safety bill in 25 years, and a Medicare for All bill was introduced in the House Oh, my God, we don't have enough time to talk about it all, but we'll get to it all with your help and your comments on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. You're going to work harder harder on Twitter today than you ever did before. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. All of that coming up, but first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news today. There's a lot of stuff going on, man. 
All right, so uh, I like a beer every now and then. You like a glass of wine every now and yes. then, and, and maybe a beer. Well, here's the thing. Uh, there is a new study where they tested popular beer and wine brands and found that a lot of them have trace levels of glyphosate in them. Now, do you know what glyphosate is? I have no idea, but I, I don't want to know. I didn't either. I don't want to know. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to tell you. Glyphosate is the main ingredient found in Roundup, the weed killer. No. Whoa. Yes. Now, they point out that it's very, 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 very small amounts. I would say any amount is too big, but they say it's around 25 to 30 uh, parts per billion in the beer and the wine. And they say that part of this is because this stuff has just become part oh, of yeah. nature. Huh. That's the thing. They're not necessarily using it in the, in the process to make it or anything like that, but it's been so prevalent that it's just finding its way into nature, and it's now finding its way into the food system. Which is terrifying. There, it's terrifying because there are several lawsuits going on that show that there is a direct link between Roundup and cancer. So, yeah, I would think. It's think about that next time you have that beer or glass of wine. Hey, what is Beto O'Rourke gonna do? Well, he knows. He says he's made up his mind. He's, he's not, not gonna run. He's not quite ready to tell us yet, but he did say he is not going to run for U.S. Senate. That right. was one of the things that he could be doing is he's going to run, could have run against John Cornyn in uh, the Senate. He says he will not do that, which means the path is paved for him to announce his run for presidency. Very interesting. Yeah. First you say what you're not going to run for, and then you say what you are going to run for. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and finally, you uh, you have some dealings with the Neverland Ranch, right, in California? <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time for the whole story, well, but let me just no, tell you. One really of our sons went to school right across the road from the Neverland Ranch, so I've been there. After Michael Jackson died, they put the house on the market for $100 million. Never sold. They just dropped it down to $30 million. Is that right? nobody would buy it. Yeah, yeah, Whoa. yeah. So it's, it's yours for the taking if uh, you want It's a beautiful it. area, a nice piece of property, right, right outside of Los Olivos, California. This is the Bill Press Show. Well, you got to say it was a bad day. Certainly not a good day for Donald Trump yesterday. The summit in Hanoi collapsed with no agreement, no deal. He's coming home with his tail between his legs. And in Washington, D.C., Michael Cohen with devastating testimony, painting a picture of a president with documentary evidence to back it up, a president whom he called a con man, a cheat, and a racist. Whoa. And there's a lot of other stuff going on, too, yesterday, by the way. But definitely not a good day for Donald Trump. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Great to see you. Thank you for joining us here. It is the Bill Press Show on a Thursday. Big Thursday, February 28th, last day of the month. Great to have you with us. Uh, with lots and lots to talk about and lots you are going to want to comment on as we join you, reaching out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, still a little cold here in Washington. Um, that's right. It's February. It should be cold in Washington. In fact, we're supposed to get some more snow or sleet tonight. Uh, and we reach out to you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, where 
is also where you find our podcast, and we ask you to sign up for the podcast, register for sure. Uh, we join you on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and on the powerful WCPT out in Chicago and the greater Chicago area and nationwide coast to coast. Here you are on Free Speech TV. So good to see you today on TV land. And yeah, what a blockbuster hearing yesterday. Boy, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. And it was, you know, my my regret was that the Oscars took place last Sunday instead of next Sunday. Because if the Oscars were next Sunday instead of last Sunday, there's no doubt about it, the Green Book would not have won. No. The envelope, the Oscar would have gone to the House Oversight Committee and that hearing yesterday. It was an Oscar-worthy performance for sure. And the way it happened was so strange. Michael, so just to sort of sum it up, Michael Cohen starts out by saying basically, I'm a snake, okay? I have done all kinds of bad things. I, in his opening statement, he says, I lied to Congress. I lied to my family. I lied to federal prosecutors. I lied to the American people. I committed financial fraud filing phony bank statements, right? I did all kinds of questionable things, bad things, illegal things for 10 years for Donald Trump. So he insisted, well, yeah, I did a lot of bad things. Of course, he said, I'm not a bad man. But he just started out by talking about all the bad things he'd done. And then Republicans spent seven hours getting Michael Cohen to admit again to all the bad things, to admit, I should say, over and over and over and over again about all the bad things that he admitted that he did in his opening statement. And not one of them during that whole time stood up to defend Donald Trump. Why? Because they can't. They cannot. If they had, you want, I, I really wondered, because they were all reading from, but what a pathetic bunch of Republicans. It didn't give you any confidence in the uh, intellectual caliber, caliber of our uh, elected officials, particularly on the Republican side. They were all reading from their already prepared statements written well before the committee hearing. So you had to wonder if they were even listening to Michael Cohen's opening statement. Because, again, the stuff they asked him is stuff that he had already said over and over and over. over. Then you even got in, into the afternoon and people were reading from Republicans from the written statements asking Michael questions, uh, uh, Michael Cohen questions about things Again, he'd said an opening statement and then had responded in questions all throughout the morning for other Republicans. Had they listened, however, they would have heard some pretty new, stunning, and evidence-backed charges against the President of the United States. Let's just listen to a few of them. How about that Trump Tower meeting in June 2016? Now, remember... Why this is important, because the president still says today, this is the meeting where Donald Trump Jr. invites the Russian operatives in to get dirt on Hillary. Of course, we find out about this after Donald Trump has said there was no contact at all with any Russian by any member of his staff, let alone his family. Donald Trump still says he knew nothing about it. Michael Cohen says he's in Donald Trump's office. Donnie Jr. walks in, walks around his father's desk, 
whispers in his ear something about a meeting. Uh, the meeting is all set, and the fa- and Donnie Donald says, "Okay, good. Let me know how it goes." Here's Michael Cohen. I also knew that nothing went on in Trump world, especially the campaign, without Mr. Trump's knowledge and approval. So I concluded that Don Jr. was referring to that June 2016 Trump Tower meeting about dirt on Hillary with the Russian representatives when he walked behind his dad's desk that day. Donald Trump denies knowing anything about the meeting. Michael Cohen, his fixer, his personal attorney for for 10 years, testifies just the opposite, that Donald Trump was aware of it, knew the Russians were coming. Can we say the word collusion? Now, Michael Cohen said he doesn't have any direct evidence of collusion, but that's certainly cooperation, if not collusion. Uh, How about the big Moscow hotel project? Again, Donald Trump says, um, I knew that, that we, yeah, um, there might have been some conversations, but all of that stopped well before the campaign started. During the campaign, he kept saying over and over again, yeah, I'm saying nice things about Vladimir Putin, but it's not because we have any business deals going on in Moscow. Not at all. No, no, no. That's over. And Michael Cohen testified yesterday that, in fact, he was directed by the president to continue those deals with Putin's representatives, even offering him the penthouse, by the way. I know he's got, got that exchange. He said, of course we did, because that raises the value of the penthouse. He said, it's like any condo building. You get a famous person in there, and then everybody else wants to come, and they'll pay more money because that famous person is in there. So Cohen says, yeah, they kept that up all along, and Donald Trump directed him to lie about it. Here's Michael Cohen. Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. Yeah, lied about it and told him to lie about it. Okay, let's go to the hush money payments with Stormy Daniels. Again, Donald Trump says, okay, I knew nothing about this at all. I didn't know that money was paid. I didn't know Michael Cohen did it. I didn't reimburse him. He said that on Air Force One. He said that. Uh, <laughs> Michael Cohen yesterday said just the opposite, that Donald Trump with uh, Michael Cohen and Alan Weisselberger, the finance CFO, uh, he said, you guys work this out, how to do it, but just get her paid. Why? Because he did not. This was right after the Access Hollywood tape. Timing is very important. And he did not want this story to come out on top of the Access Hollywood tape story and thereby threaten the uh, results of the election in November uh, 2016. So it was done at his direction to influence the outcome of a campaign. It was a direct campaign violation, violation of federal laws, which he engineered as a candidate. And then Michael Cohen presents evidence, at least well, two checks, one signed by Donald Jr. and Alan Weisenberger, and the other check for $35,000 signed on August the 1st, 2017. Where was Donald Trump? Signed by him in the Oval Office. Where was Donald Trump then in August, August 1, 2017? He was president of the United States. Here's that $35,000 check, and here's Michael Cohen explaining it. I am providing a copy 
of a $35,000 check that President Trump personally signed from his personal bank account on August 1st of 2017, when he was president of the United States. So you see, all this stuff that Michael Cohen said about Donald Trump, the Republicans didn't, didn't hear any, didn't want to hear any of that. There was some stunning information uh, that came out uh, about the, the, the bad stuff and a lot of the crimes that Michael Cohen committed for Donald Trump, with Donald Trump being part of it, even while he was president of the United States. And then there was some stuff that's sort of like little stuff, if you will, but really says a lot about Donald Trump and his character. Um, I, I thought one of the most funny things was about his grades, his high school grades and his college grades, okay? So um, Donald Trump kept saying, we've heard him say it over and over again, he's not only the wealthiest person on the planet, he's also the smartest person on the planet. And just so that nobody would undercut that statement, he directed Michael Cohen to, well, let's let Cohen tell us. When I say con man, I'm talking about a man who declares himself brilliant, but directed me to threaten his high school, his colleges, and the college board to never release his grades or SAT scores. Unbelievable. And I, I said documentation. He provided the letters that he sent to a business, business school and his high school and the others saying, don't, you know, you're, we're going to get you basically threatening them, asking them not to release them and threatening them with, uh, with uh, legal action if they were to release his high school grades. You know, the thing about uh, Michael Cohen is that he has a long history of being a snake. Yeah. And he has a, a, a long history of being a con man himself. And so for us to just expect or for him to just expect us to believe every word that he says when he just shows up is a stretch. But as you point out, he brought a lot of documentation with him. And yeah. so there's the question now of do you believe Michael Cohen or not? By the way, that's our poll on Twitter right now at BP show. You can go Good. vote. Good. Was he a credible witness? Do you believe what he said? But for me to believe what Michael Cohen said, he was going to have to bring some sort of receipt. For all the different things that he right. did. And he did. for the most part, he did. For the most part, yeah, he did. Uh, and by the way, you know, that, that, that's a real challenge, I think, is, um, you know, I mentioned the Oscar-worthy performance, like any good movie, right? It challenges the audience. you got to choose. In this case, you got to choose between two pathological liars. Uh, but the difference is you've got one who admits that he lied, and you've got one who denies every day, lies, continues to lie and lie, and denies Telling, ever telling any lie at all. So which one do you do you believe? Um, I, I think you believe the one who admits he lies, and also you, you believe the one who shows up with some evidence. And one other thing that uh, uh, Michael Cohen talked about, and this may be the most important of all, Donald Trump also denies, of course, knowing anything about any having any advanced knowledge of the emails that were released by WikiLeaks damaging to Hillary Clinton did not know, denies talking to Roger Stone about them, denies knowing about them at all. And in his written testimony to Robert Mueller, which was released, answers to the questions Mueller posed, he denied under oath knowing anything at all about these emails. Michael Cohen says he was standing in, Roger, in Donald Trump's office, meeting with him, rather, 
And phone call comes from Roger Stone. Donald Trump puts him on speakerphone. And, Don, and Roger Stone says, I just got off the phone with Julian Assange. And there are emails coming in a couple of days that Assange is going to release. I don't know whether he said got them from Russia or not or whatever. And it's going to be bad news for Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump basically says, oh, good, or something like that. So just total, I mean, as Judge Andrew Napolitano said yesterday on Fox News with Neil Cavuto, if that's true, this raises things to a whole new level of trouble for Donald Trump. But he paints a potentially grave picture for the president. If the conversation he says he overheard with Roger Stone is true, then the president lied under oath because the president swore to the accuracy of his answers to the written questions from Bob Mueller, one of which was, did you speak to Roger Stone about Julian Assange? Answer, no. If what Michael Cohn says is true, that the president knew about the meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower in June of 2016, then he lied under oath because he told Bob Mueller he didn't know about it. Yeah. So these, again, these stupid Republicans either didn't want to hear or weren't listening to some of this very, very damning testimony uh, that came through, that came from Michael Cohen yesterday. Again, they were more intent than anything else in just trying to um, destroy the reputation, such as there is any left, of Michael Cohen. I have to say, and first of all, Jamie Raskin, I believe, Democrat from Maryland, summed it up best. Here's what it was all about. The Republicans spent all this time trashing Michael Cohen as a person who came up and who had admitted lying in front of Congress. You know, so many of them said, what is he even doing here? He lied in front of Congress. So how can we start off with this witness? I mean, this guy shouldn't even be here because he lied to Congress before. Therefore, he should not be allowed to be a witness here. Jamie Raskin said, here's what that's here's what really that is all about. Mr. Cohen, thank you for your composure today. Our colleagues are not upset because you lied to Congress for the president. They're upset because you stopped lying to Congress for the president. Bingo. That's exactly it. I think it's just right hit the nail right on the head. I thought there were many cringeworthy moments. The most cringeworthy moment of all was when Mark Meadows, boy, what a piece of work Mark Meadows is. All right. I'm not so smart either, by the way. Yeah, he's definitely a piece of Work is probably best to say on the radio uh, yeah, show. I, yeah, you're probably it's a family I know. show. I was, I was trying to be careful there. Thank you. Um, so one of the charges uh, that uh, Michael Cohen made, of course, is that Donald Trump is a racist. By the way, he based that on a couple of things, um, not all of which we can repeat here on the radio show. But here's Michael Cohen basing his comments about Donald Trump being a racist on some of the things that Donald Trump said to him. While we were once driving through a struggling neighborhood in Chicago, he commented that only black people could live that way. And he told me that black people would never vote for him because they were too stupid. Sounds like racist comments to me. Uh, he also said, according to Michael Cohen, uh, he said at one time, uh, this is a time when Barack Obama is president of the United States. He said, take a look and you, you show me. You show me one country on the in the world who's led by a black man that is not an s-hole country. So there's a whole series of things that Michael Cohen related. Uh, at any rate, 
In response to that, here is the most cringeworthy moment. Mark Meadows says, do you know, to Michael, do you know a woman by the name of Lynn Patton? Yes, I do. And this woman stands up behind him, a woman who works at HUD, HUD. And Mike Meadows claims because she works at HUD, Donald Trump can't be a racist, right? I mean, it goes back and forth, back and forth um, with, um, well, you know, let's, here's, here's, here's how Mike Meadows presents it. It has to do with your claim Mark of Meadows, sorry. racism. She says that as a daughter of a man born in Birmingham, Alabama, that there is no way that she would work for, uh, for a, an individual who was racist. How do you reconcile the two of those, Mr. As neither should I, as the son of a Holocaust survivor. Good response on Michael Cohen's part. But I could not believe it. I just thought, what? I mean, he's using, you know what? It reminded me of, I, I hate to say this, of that slave market that in Charleston, downtown Charleston, where they, you know, slaves used to stand up, right, on these... So everybody could eye them and maybe buy them, right? And this woman just standing there, didn't say a word, just put, put up there as a prop. If this woman That's works the word, at HUD, as a total prop, the fact that this woman works at HUD and she's an African-American proves that Donald Trump can't be a racist. There is so much wrong with that statement. In fact, I'd say so much racism in that very thought and in that very statement. And this by, of course, Mark Meadows, <clears throat> We're supposed to believe all good kind of good things about him. He, he's a man who never had a racist thought in his life. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody went back and uh, unearthed yesterday uh, a little video from Mark Meadows running for re-election in 2012. The more we find out, the more we realize how wrong the direction we're going. And so what we're going to do is take back our country. 2012 is the time that we're going to send Mr. Obama home to Kenya or wherever it is. We're going to do it. Whoa. Definitely right. not racist. Whoa. And good for Rashida Tlaib for taking Mark Meadows on for this and just saying how offended she was. And I think her name is Brenda Lawrence also. Is that yeah. her name? Yeah. She also said the fact that from she's African-American, our entire race, you would find one person in the entire Trump administration and say this disproves that he's a racist is so offensive. Uh, just uh, there's so much. We're going to be talking about this almost all morning. Get your comments on the on the on the uh, on the hearing yesterday at BP Show. Um, it was uh, Chairman Cummings, Elijah Cummings, at the very end, who was asked after the hearing by a reporter. Basically, this sort of sums it up. The bottom line is, did Michael Cohen prove, to, in his opinion, that Donald Trump had actually committed any crimes? Here's Chairman Cummings. Do you believe that the president committed a crime while in office? Based on what, looking at the text and listening to um, Mr. Cohen, it appears that he did. Appears that he did. It sure did. Meanwhile, 8,000 miles away in Hanoi, Donald Trump saying, oh, this is going to be a great summit. We're going to home, come home with a historic agreement. Uh, they had uh, a dinner and then one meeting, and the talks were like, it looks like we're going to go on. Every, both, both sides, both uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump were saying, we're very positive. We think we're going to have a good deal. And then suddenly it all fell apart, and Donald Trump 
picked up his marbles and said, I'm going home. No deal, no agreement, no progress, a great big photo op for nothing. Donald Trump tried to spin it in the worst way afterwards, saying, you know, you just got to walk away. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work and we'll see. But we had to uh, walk away from that particular suggestion. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Of course, he insisted they're still friends, right? They're still best of friends. They would say, what do you call it? A friendly walk away. Uh, This wasn't a walk away like you get up and walk out. No, this was very friendly. Uh, We shook hands. We, uh, you know, there's a a warmth that we have. Now, I hope that stays. I think it will. (laughs) A warmth that we have. I'll tell you what this shows. What this shows is how totally incompetent, unprepared, (laughs) ill-equipped, inexperienced that Donald Trump is. In the art of the deal, he says, the key to making a deal is your willingness to walk away. And that's how you prove how tough you are. And that's how you get what you want. You just walk away. Well, it might We've work. seen this a couple of times now. We've seen it now, right? We see, Yeah, and it might work in the business world. It doesn't work in certainly in politics. He's tried that with Congress, and it hasn't worked. And it doesn't work in international diplomacy. But I think it unmasks, again, the folly of Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy is that his, he is such, he believes he is such a strong force and winning personality that just one-on-one with no advanced planning, no preparation, no experts around him, that he alone, because of a personal relationship, he develops with, by the way, some of the worst people on the planet, that he can convince them to abandon everything that they have believed in and everything they fight for and to follow Donald Trump, and it has never worked yet. He's done nothing, but he's tried that with Vladimir Putin, and Putin just runs all over him, and now he's tried it twice with Kim Jong-un, and who's the winner of both of these summits with Kim Jong-un? Kim Jong-un is the winner because he's on the world stage as an equal to Donald Trump, sitting there at dinner with him, walking around with him, holding hands with him. Exactly. That kind of respect in the world stage is what Kim Jong-un could never have had before. And now he's had it twice under Donald Trump. And what has he given up for it? Nothing. What did we get for it? Nothing. They didn't. So there is no, in terms of the goal, which, realistic or not, which is to denuclearize, meaning get rid of all nuclear weapons, meaning North Korea get rid of its nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. Nuclear weapons, of course, all nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. No progress at all. Not one weapon, is, not one missile has been destroyed. Not one test, uh, testing site has been shut down. Not one production facility has been closed. The only thing you can say is they haven't tested a missile since Donald Trump has been president. Okay, if you, cons- if you consider that a success, that's all you could point to. Uh, just uh, an embarrassing, embarrassing failure on the world stage uh, in Hanoi. So the president comes home having been trashed all day in front of the House Oversight Committee with no Republicans defending him and having failed miserably in Hanoi to get an agreement with North Korea. Um, 
I guess he's going to CPAC on Saturday, so <laughs> I guess. And maybe the gridiron did her on Saturday, so maybe that will make him feel better. I don't know. But for now, bad day for Donald Trump. And, again, other news we'll get to a little later in the program, just very, very, just, just in a couple of sentences. Big vote, historic vote yesterday in the House passing the first major gun safety legislation in uh, some 25 years and the legislation introduced by our good friend Pramila Jayapal from Washington State for Medicare for All, Democratic agenda, keeps moving. So let's take a quick break and continue talking more about the what we learned yesterday at the uh, Michael Cohen hearing uh, from Joe Perricone, uh, political reporter for Business Insider. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. And it's a Thursday, Thursday, February 28th. Uh, hello, everybody. Great to have you with us today on a great big news day and a big bad day for Donald Trump coming out of a failed summit in Hanoi and an explosive uh, and um, damning hearing yesterday on Capitol Hill. And we're brought to you today by the American Association of Government Employees, American Federation, I'm sorry, of Government Employees, uh, those good men and women who keep our federal government agencies running day in and day out. Proud to get up for every day and work for America and work for us, for Americans, uh, under the leadership of President J. David Cox. Check out their website at afge.org. And uh, say hello to Joe Perticone from the Business Insider, a political reporter, uh, uh, to talk more about the Michael Cohen hearing, which he attended yesterday. Hi, Joe. How you doing? I'm doing well. How you today doing? will be a little less exciting for you. I mean, you yeah. Know. Well, I'm going to be at CPAC today, so a different, <laughs> oh, a different kind a of different crazy. kind of show. All right, I'll see you over there this afternoon. Yeah, I'm going to be there too. So, um, on a panel, <clears throat> I know. You, you'll I be think... able to spot Bill. He's, he'll be the one with all the tomato stains on his shirt after they throw him at him on the panel. <laughs> uh, it's yes. not your crowd. I give you, I give you it, credit for going into the belly of the beast, Bill. I can't tell you how many people call me up to say, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like, I'm one of them. <laughs> all right. Uh, never been to CPAC, and I may um, not come back alive from this one. Uh, so, Joe, we've been uh, talking a lot about the Cohen hearing so far. I want to get your take, of course, but... Uh, first, to uh, turn to some of the comments from our listeners and viewers. Yes, indeed. Let's go to Twitter, where we are tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. I mentioned earlier that we have a poll up. Do you oh, believe, yes. Do you believe the revelations from the Cohen hearing, despite the fact that uh, Cohen is known to be a pathological liar? Uh, 90% <laughs> of you say, yes, he is speaking the truth. 4% of you say, no, he is a liar. 6% of you say, you are unsure. You are unsure. Let's get some comments from people responding to that particular poll. Annette says, if he lied again, he would do 70 years instead of just three. And you know Robert Mueller was watching that hearing yesterday. I think that's probably right. Uh, the 70 refers to if you add up all the potential years he could serve for all the things he's been found guilty of, correct? Mm -hmm. That that question came up yesterday, and he said, yeah, He's got three. Steve Smith on Twitter sort of uh, doubles down on that comment. Says, seems unlikely he would voluntarily testify knowing that if he was caught lying, he'd be in jail for a lot longer. Could have gotten paid to go on almost any news show and would have gotten the same headlines without being under oath. That's 
that's yeah. a good point. You mm-hmm. know, look, it, if if he but, had lied, he would be in real serious trouble. Right. Somebody else pointed out that Michael Cohen, uh, D. Ray Luther says Michael Cohen is a humbled man. We should believe what he says. Uh, and Tom says because we tweeted about you know there was the. Uh, Cohen hearing, but also the summit in Hanoi. Tom says, wait, there was a summit in Hanoi yesterday? <laughs> I think a lot of people felt that way because the Michael Cohen hearing sort of took up all of the headlines. If you have a comment on any topic at any time, you can find us on Twitter at BP Show. I must say, I watched more cable news yesterday than I've watched in a long time. That's my yearly diet of uh, cable news. That's... I've never watched that many hours of television and during the day, I think. I don't remember the last time. But at any rate... I never saw one story or one that breakaway at all about Hanoi. Not one piece of video from it. Yeah. It was all nonstop the Cohen hearing. Yeah, I was I was looking at the Google trends and how the search volume was going throughout the day and I was comparing the two and it was North Korea was just a flat line and Cohen was way up. So I mean the just the interest just from the public too and what they were searching was just I mean, it was all focused on Cohen, which is not good for the White House because they really want to highlight this big diplomatic adventure, but right, right, not happening. So Cohen had nothing to lose, did he? By I mean, or nothing, nothing to lose or nothing to gain. I guess which is it? I mean, he was going to prison. There was no way his testimony was going to get him out of prison, right? No, uh, but but I mean, there are some areas where you know if he. Uh, is helpful uh, to the government. You know, they can lighten sentencing and things like that. But I don't think that's going to come from the hearing. But that is something that does exist. What was his motive in testifying? Uh, he said that he wanted to come clean and he wanted to cooperate. Uh, but he also made aware during the hearing a part of what came from Republicans questioning is that he knows that he could be you know, given a more lenient or he could lighten his sentence if he cooperates further with investigators, which he said he's doing. Uh, so there's that aspect. He also didn't rule out that, you know, he might, you know, they asked, would you rule out writing a book? And Republicans were trying to make it, I think, appear that he had financial motiva- motivations. But he was honest in saying, no, I'm not going to rule out writing a book or TV deal or something. I thought it was a very, that was a very honest moment. If, yeah. if, when they said, do you have a book? They said, no, I have no book deal, right? Or yeah. basically, I'm paraphrasing, but as I recall, then the follow-up was, would you be interested in an, another book deal or something like that? Or would you be interested in a book? They said, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, hello, why not, right? Yeah. I mean, he's lost a considerable amount of money through this right. whole process uh, at his own so, fault. But Yes. You know, All right. Not? So you were in the hearing room yesterday. Tell us what was that what, what that was like. Uh, it was very tense. I haven't been hearing that tense in a long time. Um but it was it was really interesting because the oversight committee there are a lot of heavy hitters from both parties you know you've got Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and a lot of the real conservative Freedom Caucus type guys and then on the Democratic side you got a lot of these insurgent freshmen uh, like Rashida Tlaib and she got into a big spat with Mark Meadows at the end there uh, so it was really interesting but then you also have the very smart uh, methodical members who you know have been doing this for a long time. Uh, Jerry Connolly, guys like that who just really know the committee and know what to do um, and know how to elicit newsworthy answers. Uh, you know, on that list, I would include Jackie Spear. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought her questions, and particularly with how many times did he ask you to threaten somebody if they didn't do exactly what he wanted? Lots. And she said, 50. 
up. Yeah, <laughs> it she, kept going up to 500. Yeah, and she's also on intelligence too. So she's uh she has a lot more she's a lot more in the know on a lot of this stuff than a lot of the other members are. So that gives her a significant advantage. Right. So um if you had one, two or three takeaways from the hearing, what would they be? Uh, I think one of the most newsworthy things was when Michael Cohen said that, and, and this hasn't been proven, but he certainly said so uh, under oath, that Donald Trump knew in advance of the WikiLeaks dump. Um, if that's proven to be true, that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Uh, because? Um, I mean, they've, they've denied that they've they've done it, but also, I mean, it shows that, you know, they, they knew in advance, and that's that's something that's, like, very serious. Yeah. Uh, Let me just add to that. We played this clip earlier, but it's worth hearing again. Um, A person who has has emerged as um, or evolved or whatever as more and more critical of Donald Trump from a legal perspective is Andrew Napolitano on Fox. Uh, And he was, I saw he was on Fox and Friends this morning. Uh, Not sure what he said, but on with Neil Cavuto, which is, is that Fox business, isn't it? Yesterday afternoon. Um, pointing out your, your point about this might have been you know, the one most dangerous part for Donald Trump. But he paints a potentially grave picture for the president. If the conversation he says he overheard with Roger Stone is true, then the president lied under oath because the president swore to the accuracy of his answers to the written questions from Bob Mueller, one of which was, did you speak to Roger Stone about Julian Assange? Answer, No. If what Michael Cohn says is true, that the president knew about the meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower in June of 2016, then he lied under oath because he told Bob Mueller he didn't know about it. All right. So on that one, it's not just what Donald Trump has said to the media, right? Yeah. To the special counsel. Yeah. Another another part of it that was interesting was when Michael Cohen said, you know, I can't answer certain things because I'm still cooperating with investigators. That's that, a big deal. Yeah. That, well, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, he was asked about a particular, I forget what the, the the circumstances were, and he said, I can't answer that because that's under investigation, right? Yeah. So that's an area I can't go into. And that was related to the Southern District of New York, right? Mm-hmm. So he seemed to be saying there's some other criminal activity, potential criminal activity, that the SDNY, as they call it, is investigating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and obviously, you know, something like that, like they would be probing something like his finances, um, and that probably makes them a lot more nervous than probing, you know, this, you know, long allegation of Russian collusion. Something a lot more serious and probably a lot more likely is is problems with his finances, just because of who he has, you know, been bu- in business with for decades, um, but also his style that's been reported and, and shown that, you know, he might have a lot of skeletons in his closet, financially speaking. Right. Um, in terms of criminal activity, there's that. There's the one we just talked about, Roger Stone. I guess the other example, and there may have been others, but the one I immediately think of is the hush money payment, which was done, according to Michael Cohen, deliberately to avoid and not reported, right, um, because um, they were trying to influence the outcome of the election. Yeah. I mean th- – that's still a little murky about what that means, you know, like, did this count as an in-kind contribution to his campaign? That's not exactly clear yet, but that's certainly how uh, Michael Cohen made it sound and how Democrats on the committee wanted to make it sound. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, what well, uh, you know this the aspect of that which I had was unaware of before. I don't know. I hadn't heard it or missed it. Is that Donald Trump not only said, "Okay, you find a way to pay her off," and then you guys work it out, um, and then help me out by lying, telling Melania it never happened. Yeah, lying to the first lady about it. Yeah, and Cohen said that was his biggest regret of the entire fiascos surrounding Stormy Daniels is that he had to lie to Melania's face. So, but he was willing to do so. Yeah, I, the whole part of I it thought, was him just saying, "Yes, I did all these horrible things, but I'm really sorry." Yeah, just over and over. You know, uh, one interesting he, thing he said was, "So the question kept up. You worked for him for ten years. I mean, and you knew he was doing all this bad stuff. Why?" Why? That's a, you, you got to ask that question. You know, why would he hang around him that long? Uh, Peter, we got that where he he talked about Donald Trump's personality, um, as to you know the answer for his like he said, I think the word he used was intoxicating. Being around Mr. Trump was intoxicating. Yeah. When you were in his presence, you felt like you were involved in something greater than yourself, that you were somehow changing the world. Got that, I guess, that sort of, right, powerful personality. Yeah, I mean, he's always been this, you know, very, you know, tallest guy when he walks into the room, and he's very intoxicating is a strange way to describe it. But, you know, he is very personable. He remembers everyone's face. He knows all this. You know, he's he's a very unique personality, and I get it. And it's probably why he was extremely appealing to, you know, voters around the country in 2016. So I kind of get that. Um, but again, like that really doesn't excuse a lot of the very Mm -mm. horrible things that Michael Cohen said happened. No, but you know, he, he got into that. I, 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 I cringe when I hear that because that phrase of something larger than yourself, right. Was the one that John McCain used for getting involved in public service. I think when John McCain talked about believing in something larger than yourself or bigger than whatever the phrase uh, that he wasn't thinking about working for Donald Trump, right? Just yeah. thinking like about more no, noble, more noble pursuits than that. Um, but in that capacity, he admits he was willing to do um, to do almost almost anything. So another thing that that um, you're sitting there, uh, I'm sure you heard over and over, is that Cohen he sort of painted. A path for the committee where where the committee ought to go next and who they should talk to next, right? I mean, he named names of other people who were involved in some of the things that he did, that included key staff members and key family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's he, I guarantee that he's going into more detail in these closed hearings with the intelligence committee um, <laughs> because that that's a lot more intimate of a setting where he can be a lot more candid than you know this kind of five minute Q and A. Yeah, each member, right. Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. I think he's going to be able to get into a lot more detail in the closed sessions. Um, so that's really going to propel those investigations. I think a lot more than oversight. You know, the public hearing is its own spectacle, but these intelligence committees are, are much more methodical about what they're doing. And so he talked about, I'm just thinking, Alan Weisselberger came up several times, right? The, Weisselberg, I guess, is the um, chief financial officer who's already cooperating, isn't he, with the Southern District of New York, or at least has been think, talked to, I know. I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, he talked about Donald Trump Jr. 
about Ivanka, right? And and he mentioned uh, Jay Sukolo, yes. the president's other lawyer. So that that's a big deal too. Right. In fact, uh, that's a good point. Um, he said that in his testimony, Jay Sekulow edited his testimony before Congress, which he knew again was a lie, right? Yeah. Jay Sekulow, one of the president's attorneys in the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that that's a very big deal um, because that kind of turns it back on the White House. You know, did they did they approve of these things that he said that were now proven to be a lie? which he's now going to prison for. So that's that's probably a very, very big deal. Right. All right. So what happens today? Senate intelligence. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be there? Uh, no. I'm going to be at CPAC. But, I, I mean, so the Senate Intelligence Committee is closed. Um, the Senate Intelligence Committee throughout the past couple of years has been a lot more grown up than the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, there, You don't see the kind of partisan bickering going on between the two sides of the committee. So they're they're going to get a lot done. But that was Senate intelligence was Tuesday, ah, right? House, I'm sorry. Then yeah, we're flipping them. So House intelligence, right. um, yeah, the House intelligence is just getting off the ground. Um, they're because they're finally and Democrats are now in the majority, uh, but they're going to be you know going through it there. Um, you know th- that's going to be closed too. But as we've seen, that a lot of the House members are a lot more public about the <laughs> things they talk about. A lot more willing to leak. Yeah. Um, but also, like, willing to go on TV and describe it. You never see Richard Burr on TV talking about the investigations. That just doesn't happen. So you're going to see a lot more people, you know, recapping what happened, maybe like a readout of it. But in terms of getting a transcript of what happens, I don't know if we'll get that um, this week or something. Uh, and what are they talking about? What, what will they be talking about today behind closed doors that's different from yesterday? So a big thing they didn't want to do is they didn't want to overlap uh, with a lot of this stuff. Um so, I mean, they, they might be probing. They might be focusing maybe more on um, – I know that they've reopened the investigation into Russian collusion and stuff like that. So they are, they'll probably focus a lot more on that, um, maybe less on, you know, the kind of broad brush stuff, you know, asking about various affairs and all kinds of things for Michael Cohen. Uh, so it'll just depend on the focus of the committee. Uh, in terms of what Republicans will do in the closed session, I do not know because – a lot of what happened in the public uh, hearing yesterday was attempting to kind of tar him and, and, and mock him. There were posters in the room saying, liar, yeah. liar, pants on fire. Right. They're not going to do that in a closed session. Uh, so we'll see with that. Now, um, one, you, know, you wonder why uh, Michael Cohen did what he did. And we just heard that clip where he said because you know, Cohen was such a powerful personality. Uh, you also wonder why Donald Trump did some of the things that he did, um, like why lie about the um, Moscow tire, Tower project? Uh, he kept saying there were no business deals. He was he had nothing going on in Russia all during the campaign, as Michael Cohen testified. Uh, oh, as a matter of fact, those negotiations continued, and I was the one. I was I was the person who was conducting them. And they went all the way through November 2016, um, and I lied about them because Donald Trump told me to lie about them, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and so I thought that Michael Cohen gave a very candid answer yesterday about the whole campaign and what the campaign, the basis of the campaign, and Donald Trump thinking during the entire campaign was he didn't care what he did because he never expected to win. Yeah. You know-
He never expected to win the primary. He never expected to win the general election. The campaign for him was always a marketing opportunity. But you know what? When you played that clip, Peter, just I almost suffered while it was Chris Christie talking. Oh, wow. No, I hear it. Don't you hear I can it? I hear it. That? Yeah. I guess it's that New Jersey, New York. He never expected to win the primary. Oh, man. He never expected to win the general election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear it now, too. The yeah. <laughs> for him was always a marketing opportunity. All right. We think that was Michael Cohen yesterday. <laughs> but that explains a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, and Michael Cohen said, you know, that he, I, I forget who was asking him. I think it was Jim Cooper. I could be wrong. He, he asked, you know, why did these negotiations end? And he said, because he won the presidency. Yeah. So it's the only reason they ended. So right. But there were there were a lot of things that they hadn't gotten. They didn't have a specific lot of property in their hands yet. So it didn't advance to that point. But I mean, yeah, he was very detailed about that about those negotiations that that you know Trump and his loyalists have been very closed off about for years now. But so in 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 terms of explain again, he, I think he the phrase he used again was well, he says the marketing opportunity. It was like all about branding, you know, that, that, that this was sort of an exercise in building up his business brand, never thinking that it might actually, he might actually end up with a grand prize himself. And so he was willing to take some chances and not piss off Vladimir Putin because he thought he was going to need him after November, right, mm-hmm. for the, for the, for yeah, the hotel but, project. But also, and you know, the, a big thing that Republicans hammered explains a lot to me about things that he dared do during the campaign. Yeah. A lot of Republicans hammered in, though, you know, that it kind of conflicted with how could he have, you know, colluded to win if he didn't even anticipate winning mm-hmm. and, and that he, he had these other goals. Um, both of those scenarios don't reflect well on Donald Trump, um, but it is kind of a weird dilemma that's just kind of hanging out there now. Uh, but in response to that, at one point, forget who the Democrat was asking that question. It might have been Debbie Wasserman Schultz right up at the front. He did say that he loves winning and he'd be willing to work with anybody to win. Yeah. I think that was in response to a question. Do you know if he colluded with the Russians? He said he didn't know, right? Would he do that? Yeah. I don't know that he did, but I know him well enough to know he wants to win. Yeah. Basically, so like anything might be possible. Um, the chairman uh, at the end of the hearing was asked uh, outside the hearing room by a reporter, I thought, a very key question in terms of where we go next. Uh, here is Chairman Cummings. you believe that the president committed a crime while in office? Based on what, looking at the text and listening to um, Mr. Cohen, it appears that he did. What does that mean? Well, I mean, like I said, I don't think this this hearing moves either party, uh, and I think that's just because a it is Michael Cohen who's already lied to Congress. Uh, but I cer- I certainly think that because he put them in new directions and pointed them, you know, who to talk to, uh, that's very interesting because be because of that, you know. He, but if they the committee now, it, yeah. if the committee, if the chairman of the committee is saying, we were presented evidence, presented mm-hmm. evidence, not just testimony, right, mm-hmm. and sworn testimony, that tells me that the president committed crimes while president of the United States, 
Cummings is just not going to leave that un, unaddressed, right? Yeah. But, but so he, what do they do about it? Yeah. I mean, he also is, and, and Democratic leadership certainly is also very hesitant to use that I word impeach. Right. So they, you know, I'm going to wait to, to hear what we hear from Pelosi first because that'll give us a better direction of what direction Democrats want to go in. Right. And she has a press conference today. Oh, she does. Yeah. Okay, good. And that probably means, though, that there will be some more hearings and maybe calling other, some of these other people in. Be a lot more hearings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Hey, it's great to see you, Joe. Thanks so much for coming in. I'll see you at CPAC this afternoon. Joe Perdicone with Business Insider, businessinsider.com. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. You might call it a bad day for Donald Trump. The summit blows up in Hanoi and <laughs> the House Oversight Committee blows up with the testimony of Michael Cohen back here in Washington. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you today. It is The Bill Press Show. On this Thursday, February 28th, last day of the month, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, on a blockbuster news day. Yes, the summit, collapse of the summit, uh, heading home early, walking away from the table. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, a long way to go for nothing, uh, but he's heading back home from uh, Hanoi. Meanwhile, uh, the, the Michael Cohen steps from the House Oversight Committee, uh, after seven hours of testimony yesterday and a very explosive hearing, and he steps behind closed doors with the House Intelligence Committee today. The House taking time out yesterday to vote, um, very lopsided vote, in favor of the first gun safety bill legislation passed in about 25 years and legislation introduced in the House for Medicare for All, by our good friend from Illa Jayapal from Washington State. Um, Ginger, Ginger Gibson here with from Reuters. What a day, huh? Yesterday was quite the day. Yep. Seriously. Hours in the in the hearing room yesterday, uh, listening to the testimony, listening to Democrats and Republicans. Were you in the hearing room as I well? I was in the hearing room you yesterday. You and Joe both here. All right. Well, we'll get both of your perspectives. Can't wait to hear from that and more about things that you've been reporting on today we haven't talked about, talked about yet with that little bit of tease. We'll let you go while we hear from Peter. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. How about this? Yesterday in Alabama, they asked Roy Moore, oh. would you consider running for office again? And Roy Moore did not say no. This was at an Alabama Republican Party dinner gala. Uh, and 
he again talked about it and said, I would not rule it out. In fact, his son, Caleb Moore, who runs a political action committee, sent out an email fundraising appeal. Oh. Does that mean that they're going to get behind Roy Moore? Does that mean he's going to run for office again? Well, I don't know. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. But I can imagine a lot of Republicans are not thrilled with that. You know, um, I saw Doug Jones said, bring it on, baby. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, nothing better. Finish the wall, right? That's the new thing from the Trump administration. Finish the wall. Well, a lot of the prototypes for the border wall had been built near San Diego. They had a lot of different sections of wall that were built so mm-hmm. people could show what they were able to do. Uh, well, yesterday, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, they took them all down. They tore all of the walls down. They said they don't need them anymore. Yeah, but they, they also proved to be non-workable. I mean, well, they were all rejected for different reasons. Exactly, yeah. yeah, they, none, yeah. Of them, none of them were exactly <laughs> what Donald Trump wanted. And, you know, now he's talking about how he wants steel slats and things like that. Uh, but they said that they don't need these prototypes anymore. The national emergency is kind of happening so we'll see sort of where they go from there but for now they just took them all down they're done no more. uh on finish the wall um hey folks it's worth googling the this week's new yorker new yorker cover is classic yeah so absolutely. i'll say check yeah, it out yeah, check, check it, it out. out uh and there is a new treat you know sometimes at night i like to have a little bowl of ice cream after dinner right before i go to bed uh, there's a new uh, treat called night food. Night food, they make ice cream, and they say it's better for you to eat before bed. Why? Not necessarily because of what they put in it, but because of what they take out. It has less lactose, less sugar, and less caffeine in it than some other ice creams have. Like when you think about caffeine, right? Like there are yeah. some that have, you know, chocolate has caffeine Does in Ben it. & Jerry's have a night food? They don't, actually. Oh, they don't. Right. The name of the uh, ice cream brand is called Night Food, and they say, have this instead of regular ice cream, and it won't give you a restless night of sleep. <laughs> I've been doing just fine, by the way, with having a little with, bit of ice cream with before With the, uh, with the loaded, regular ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Leaded ice cream. <laughs> yeah, right. This is the Bill Press Show. Indeed, uh, Michael Cohen says, uh, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, but Donald Trump is even a bigger liar and a bigger cheat and a racist and a con artist on top of that. What a hearing yesterday in front of the House Oversight Committee. And what do you say, folks? Great to see you. Welcome to the program, the Bill Press Show, Thursday, Thursday, February 28th. Eight, winding up the month of February with a bang yesterday. And meanwhile, the big summit in, ha- in Hanoi falling apart, ending early, both sides getting up, walking away from the table with no agreement. Um, but the president says it was just a friendly walk away. We're still friends, but accomplished absolutely nothing. Uh, and reverberations here in Washington about the House Oversight Committee yesterday with uh, Michael Cohen, his third day of testimony today in front of the House Intelligence Committee behind closed doors. There in the crowd uh, of reporters yesterday in the hearing room, although it was a pretty small hearing room, actually, uh, we, uh, Joe Perdicone from Business Insider was there, who uh, joined us for the last half hour. Also there, Ginger Gibson from Reuters. Um, and I guess, were there more reporters than regular people there or whatever? No, they just had 
crammed us all into the corner, so we Uh-oh. were we were packed in there tight. Yeah. Now, before we get to that hearing, you have some breaking news this morning on the 2020 front that uh, we haven't been able to talk about yet. A brand new story on Reuters.com this morning about Joe Biden um, uh-huh. and about as he gets very close to making a decision to run for president, he's really going to have to contend with a party that's lost the clamor for him, that says they're not sure they need them. Uh, my colleague Jim Oliphant and I interviewed more than two dozen strategists, voters in early states, and a lot of them Whoa. said they huh. love the guy. He's great. Uh, they just don't think he he's the guy they need right now. Whoa. Wow. Uh, is So did you talk to anybody in the Biden on the Biden operation or we team? did we did we talked to people close to Biden they said he they, you know this was he was legitimately still making up his mind he was legitimately still re- reaching a decision that he has put the infrastructure in place uh, should he decide to run and that they think they have answers to some of the criticisms like uh, he's too old they say well he's a man who understands the institutions he'll be able to quickly uh, get to work will not have to learn on the job. So they think that they have uh, some responses to, to, to problems like that, that they think he can make an argument. But they also seem to know that it's it's not going to be easy. Uh, he's not going to become uh, a, a, an immediate front runner and, and hold that place the entire time. He's going to have to fight for it if he runs. Nobody is going to get the coronation treatment that Hillary Clinton got the last time, right? Bernie is not. Joe Biden would not. Elizabeth Warren not. They're all going to have to fight for it, right? Absolutely correct. You know, I went to the DNC's winter meeting and I talked to a lot of their delegates for the story. uh, And you would ask them, do you like anyone? Do you dislike anyone? And it it was... I don't know if I'm going to dislike Bernie, uh, but it was those two uh, who who just names came up more than anyone. It's like, you know, either I think they're great or I think they're wonderful. I just I don't think they should be running. Hmm. Um, Well... And just we played a couple of clips, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, from Joe Biden, who was up at the University of Delaware over the weekend. Uh, And he said, you know, that they've had their family meeting and all the people that are most important to him in his life want him to go. But yet I still haven't made a decision. It reminds me so much of 2016 during the summer when Hillary was faltering a little bit, right? Had had a couple of slip ups. Bernie was coming on strong. And Joe went through this whole long period of Hamlet-like of do I run or do I not run? And then I remember they announced that he was going to make his announcement about his decision in the Rose Garden at the White House. And I knew right away, if he's making it in the Rose Garden, he's not saying, I'm running for president. No. And he he comes out. I was there with Barack Obama by his side to say he's not going to run. I think also if you remember back to 2016 that we got to like October and again had another round of like, could he run now? Is it too late? Yeah. Could he jump yeah. in? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When there was a lot of nervousness about Hillary. Um, I don't think that if he says no this time, that's going to happen again this time. When I talk to Democrats, they say the field is just strong enough um, and candidates are going to get better, right? That like there are people who um, are going to grow into the role uh, that are already strong and will get stronger stronger so that they don't think that we're going to be sitting here in November asking, could he change his mind? Could he come back uh, if he doesn't run? I think the worst thing that could happen to Joe, I would hate to see this happen to him, is that he jump in expecting it to be all a bed of roses. It won't be. And he ends up not not losing to Donald Trump, not winning the primary. 
And and he's going to have to handle a lot of things, right? We talk about in our story the Anita Hill hearings, um, positions he took on foreign policy, positions he took under Barack Obama that are not so popular, uh, like TARP and the bailout, uh, even among among liberals at this point. Right. Um, and um, so any any sense finally about when he's going to make his decision? We're all waiting with great anticipation. So soon, but, they say. But no. Soon, right. We don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, what was your take on the hearing? First of all, what was it like in that hearing room yesterday? Uh, it was it was tension filled. Um, I think that's an adequate description of what it was like. Uh, I was a little surprised we didn't see a lot of protests. We didn't see a lot of people yelling. I was surprised. I kept waiting for Medea Benjamin and Code Pink to stand up. And Medea did not show up. No, the folks who've been showing up outside of uh, the courthouse from Manafort and Stone hearings didn't show up. One guy sort of shouted half a sentence, and he was gone before uh, he the other half of the sentence out. Uh, but, it, but it was tension-filled. I mean, the Republicans were trying... Uh, to amp up uh, the tension. I have to say, though, Cohen stayed incredibly even-killed, uh, got a little flustered a couple of times, but yeah. seemed to uh, have made a real conscious decision to not let them get under his skin that much. Uh, sort of seeming indignant at times, but not angry. Uh, the most explosive moment was at the very end between two members. Right, with the on the racism thing with Mark Meadows, which we talked about uh, earlier. No, I thought Cohen did. You're right, a couple of times... You know, he lost it a little, just a little bit, but he came right back. And I think that that they had, I'm sure Lanny and others had coached him ahead of time. They are really going to try to rally. Don't let it happen, right? They're going to call you a liar, all the worst things in the world, which they did. But what's interesting to me is they spent all, uh, and I sort of my summation of it earlier I gave, which is, I mean, Michael Cohen spent 30 minutes, the first 30 minutes, the first part of his 30 minutes, admitting to doing all these bad things, lying to Congress, lying to American people, lying to the federal prosecutors, filing false tax returns, boom, 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 boom. They spent seven hours getting him to admit over and over again the things that he had already admitted in his opening statement and very little time defending Donald Trump. There was little time defending Donald Trump. And, you know, um, I am not convinced entirely that making him out to be a liar is a winning hand for Republicans. Um, because if he's lying in the hearing, was he lying when he defended Donald Trump's military service? Was he yeah. lying when he told reporters that he was rich? Was he lying uh, when he was calling and berating reporters for five years before Donald Trump ran for president? Um, you know, that the, yes, uh, the man has some honesty problems. Uh, I and you just you you want him to believe them on some things that uh, uh, so I'm not sure that they that they have made their case that way. Um, there the problems that they had with Michael Cohen were not necessarily because he was lying. I will let uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin sum it up, um, which I thought he did very cleverly um, when his turn came. Mr. Cohen, thank you for your composure today. Our colleagues are not upset because you lied to Congress for the president. They're upset because you stopped lying to Congress for the president. I think Jerry Connolly also had a really good soundbite, if you heard his, oh, which I was yeah. um, that he said, uh, you know, the Republicans would have you believe that no one who was part of a, of a criminal enterprise ever turned and testified on uh, against their boss. Like they would throw out every organized crime conviction ever because that's how these things work. Mm -hmm. um, who sort of tried to undermine the fact, of course, the guy did bad things. We're talking about bad things like um, he would have had to have been a participant in order to be able to now tell us that those things happened. Um, and look, I think the American public has seen enough crime movies um, <laughs> that like that. 
that's uh, there is always in in so many of them a storyline that uh, a guy who was involved in terrible things has a change of heart, changes his mind, and comes forward and testifies. You know, the, the, we call it the CI, the, you know, the CSI effect, but this is like the the Law and Order effect, where the bad guy comes forward and says, "Oh, actually, we were all being terrible." Um, as I called it earlier, the most cringeworthy moment of the hearing you you just referenced it to was Mark Meadows. Uh, inviting um, HUD uh, official Lynn Patton uh, into the hearing room to stand up. That's all. Didn't say a word, right? No. The fact that this black lady works for the administration, Donald Trump can't be a racist. There's so much wrong with that. And and the other part, Cohen helped her get her job um, at the Trump organization. She said, I brought her in. Um, So it was all very... Strange moment. Um, and, and then uh, Congresswoman Tlaib saying, you know, using a woman like a prop is inappropriate. And then the indignation from Meadows that he had been called a racist um, was sort of all just a, a surreal moment at the end of that hearing. But the idea that you could find, well, you got Ben Carson too, right? You really have to hunt hard to find African Americans in the Trump administration. I think, to, remember, um, Peter, about it was about a year ago that um, after Omarosa left, oh and, yeah, right, and and Sarah Huckabee Sanders was pressed to name another African American, and she said there was like, well, there's Ernie or somebody right, like I forgot that. The guy's well, name. she couldn't even remember his last name, and it was somebody who worked over in the old executive office building in the mail room or something. I mean, I think that the thing here is. Is yeah. to suggest that one black person, having yeah. not themselves witnessed uh, racism, right. is evidence yes. that someone is not racist. Uh, most p- racist people, and I'm not saying this is proof that the president is, but most racist people are pretty good about not being racist in front of their uh, minorities that they encounter. Um, they are not often uh, gonna gonna show that side of themselves to someone if they are. Um, it, it just was sort of an absurd way to respond to that. Right. I couldn't believe that she allowed herself to be used as a prop like that. And then you know, Mark Meadows says, and I want her entire statement to be entered in the, into the record. She didn't say a thing. She told him. Well, know, today we can go get her written. She would have provided a written statement. We can go get it out of the record and see what she said. Um, what she alluded to is that Trump was wonderful. Uh, well, <laughs> one thing I was talking to Joe about earlier is that, um, intriguingly, uh, Michael Cohen mentioned... Um, other people who were involved with him in doing bad things for Donald Trump or maybe even committing crimes, uh, that's certainly an, uh, I took it as an invitation to the committee. These are the people you should call in next. And, and look, they were right? asking like that. So we saw multiple times where they said, what, who else knows this? Uh, I, there was an exchange at one point where they said, where is the document that would prove this? And he said, oh, it's in Trump files. Where is the file? Oh, it's in a storage unit in New Jersey, probably. Um, that's pretty remarkable. And you know what? It probably gave Democrats a tiny bit more credibility. They weren't just trying to get a really salacious soundbite out of Michael Cohen. They were trying to get information that they could do more on. Um, and it shows that he is not the puzzle. Uh, he is a piece in a bigger puzzle that we're going to see uh, this committee keep trying to put together uh, as they go forward. We broke as exclusive yesterday morning, an hour before uh, the, the hearing. I had a story that said they're going to call Cherry Dillon, the president's tax attorney, and they're going to call uh, Stefan Pasatino, former deputy White House counsel, uh, for transcribed interviews before the committee uh, in, in two weeks. Um, that's a sure sign that they're going to keep going. 
Right. Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It's good work. Good work. <laughs> I didn't see that. But and, and like he mentioned, Alan Weisselberg. Okay, you're never going to call him Donald Trump Jr. Boom, Ivanka, whatever, Jay Sekulow. Boom. And they said, who else could help nail that down if you don't have that information? Who could provide that? Who else was there? There. I mean, when when Michael Cohen says on the hush money payments. Donald Trump said, you guys work it out. You, you, Alan Weisselberg and Michael Cohen, you guys work it out and, um, you know, I'll take care of you or whatever. Um, So they've got to talk to Weisselberg. The other thing that Cohen did that I think is really important here that's gotten maybe less attention is he cleared out some Internet conspiracy theories and sort of got rid of some underbrush that had sort of been nagging at, like, well, yeah, should they be yeah. investigated? There's no tape of him in Melania in an elevator. There's probably no tape of him in in uh, Russia. There's no love child. There's no... I mean, he just sort of went through... He never did drugs. He never had a woman get an abortion. None of these things. And, and He I, said he would not... He's the kind of person who would never, never strike his wife. Never, never strike his wife. Um, right. and, and I think that that was interesting to see him sort of dispatch with those things. He never did Which drugs. Which I thought helped his credibility. You know, he wasn't Cohen's credibility. Yeah, he wasn't like yeah. trying to wink, wink, nod, nod at the at the internet conspiracy trolls. He was saying, "Yeah, good. These things are not true. Let's move on." I'm telling you the things that have really happened, and these are the things you should pay attention. Right. To. Um, in terms of, uh, um, you know, Jackie Spear had the exchange of how many times <laughs> uh, did he ask you to threaten somebody not to do something? Right. Um, starting with the schools, uh, not to release his grades, but reporters not to not to report this story or whatever. He's, he ended up like five hundred times or more. Five hundred times in ten years. Yeah, you'd uh, either threatened with litigation or threatened in some way or tried to get someone not to do something. I think there was probably a lot of reporters being like, "I feel like I got called five hundred times <laughs> by Michael Cohen when he was uh, at the Trump Organization." But uh, it was a pretty remarkable number when you think about it. Uh, I mean, it was a big part of his job. Uh, there's a great piece if you've never read it that Michael Falcone wrote for ABC in 2011 uh, about about Michael Cohen um, that about how he was Trump's attacker. Falcone did it at oh, ABC yeah. in 2011 about when Michael Cohen, and he alluded to this yesterday too, when he flew Trump's plane to Iowa in 2011 to try to stoke uh, um, a speculation that, that Trump was running for president and just let it sit on the tarmac and have someone take pictures and then flew it back. No. Uh, yes. This is a true story. <laughs> People forget this happened. I completely forgot. No. <laughs> um, flew Trump t- he flew Trump's plane to Des Moines in 2011, had it sit on the tarmac. If you've been to Des Moines, the tarmac is yeah. quite visible. Um, and had it sit on the tarmac so that someone would take a picture of it being there. Um, and it talked about how he was his attack dog, how he was calling people up and 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 doing that for the president. So when when Cohen said yesterday, I started the Trump for president, he wasn't over exaggerating. He did uh, years before Trump actually did run for president. Did Michael Cohen or did he not ever want a job in the White House? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, we do know he tried to trap on his influence. Like we do know oh, yeah, that yeah, he tried yeah. to monetize his, his influence. And as did Lewandowski, as did a lot of other people. And we also know that inside uh, the White House, there was a huge power struggle going on 
in the early days and it stretched on for a long time. I thought one of the most interesting things he said in that whole conversation was that he told the president, like, look, if you put me in the White House, you lose your attorney-client privilege yeah, and you need yeah. that attorney-client right, privilege right. for me to keep doing things. And no one followed up and said, aren't you violating attorney-client privilege now? <laughs> Not one. Rep- there was a conversation that he might have been violating attorney-client privilege for other clients but not for the president, that almost made me wonder if there was a concerted effort to not uh, pursue that line of questioning. So surprised that we didn't see uh, it. Yeah, I thought that was one place where Jim, Jim Jordan, the attack dog, really went off in a wrong direction. He was trying to prove that, you know, you're just sour grapes because you didn't get the job you wanted in the White House. And he didn't want to hear when Michael Cohen says no. Just the opposite. They called me in and I had an attorney. He said, I had an attorney come in to tell them no, this is not a good idea because you got the attorney client now with Michael Cohen. You lose it if you make him a White House employee. So he said he he not only didn't want a job, he went out of his way to make sure that they understood why it was not a good idea to give him one. Uh, and, well, I think Jordan maybe knew he was had and just didn't want to pursue that, right? He just dropped it and moved on to other he, stuff. He came back a couple times to it. He came back to it in his closing remarks that it was sour grapes. Uh, that one didn't seem to stick very well uh, as a as a counter argument. So. Um, the <laughs> uh, the exchange is about why Donald Trump. I keep coming back to this. Why a lot of this happened? Where Michael Cohen said because none of them expected to win, so they were almost willing to do anything. And and we saw Republicans just appalled at the notion that that Donald Trump never thought he was going to win. Um, I mean, he was a long shot. Even the most, most of those people on people, that committee were not supporting him. No, um, <laughs> not primary. campaigning for him, not no. supporting him. Some of them, I think, directly opposed him in the general election. Um, I, 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 you know, and and look, there was a mosh. Uh, who did not sound like his Republican colleagues up there, um, whose line of questioning was quite distinctive uh, from the rest of the Republicans. Mm-hmm. He was not on board with Trump and has never gotten on board. So uh, to suggest that there was some that, that anyone would have thought that shock that Trump didn't think he was going to win when he started uh, surprised me. Some of the response on the part of um, I, and I, Jeff Tubin at uh, CNN yesterday uh, talking about the again, is this a big, big hearing? Everybody knew it was going to be broadcast uh, gavel to gavel. Uh, you would think the Republicans might have coordinated better or planned better. Most of them just ended up reading from statements that have been written before the hearing, uh, which seemed, which almost, what did ignore anything that Cohen had said in his opening statement, as if they weren't even listening. But, but I want to get your comments. But, but uh, this is uh, Jeff Tubin's reaction. I am struck by the breathtaking incompetence of the questioning. I mean, this endless bloviating and not actually getting any information out of the witness. Yeah, it, it was, I thought, pretty pathetic overall. I think that there was a decision made that they couldn't get anything useful out of them, right? That, like, what are you going to get them to say? Like, actually, no, I wasn't lying on behalf of the president when I said those things. Or actually, no, like, I suppose you could have gone down a line that was... 
uh, nice things he did. And at one point he said, look, he has the capability of being generous. He has the capability mm-hmm. of being nice. Uh, maybe more of that. Uh, but I think what you saw in all those little speeches was somebody just going, well, I have to be on camera and let's hope my local news uses this soundbite uh, when they run it tonight. And it's just a, a clip of me saying what I think I want to say. Now, uh, Republicans were, uh, particularly in the beginning, they were um, very quick to try to cast uh, a dual shadow over the uh, committee. One was Lanny Davis, who sat right there to, <laughs> to Mr. Cohen's, well, left on stage, right on, on uh, where he was sitting. Um, that it, Lanny Davis, he was there because Lanny Davis orchestrated the whole thing. He's the one who said, this is good. He it, it was pretty hard to follow, actually. It started with the Clinton campaign, and still this was part of the Clinton agenda for Lanny to arrange this hearing for Michael Cohen to make the Clintons look good or something, and that he went to the committee chairman and said, you got to do this. Will you do this for me? And Cummings said, yes, and kind of whatever. Um, how did this hearing come about? It Was it all orchestrated by Lanny Davis? I don't believe it was all orchestrated by Lanny Davis, but Lanny Davis is his attorney. So, of course, there would have been conversations between Cohen and Lanny Davis. Yeah. Uh, in the first five minutes of uh, Republican speeches, in the first maybe two minutes of Jordan's speech, we had both Lanny Davis and Tom Steyer. I was going to bring him up <laughs> next. being right. the cause of this. Yeah, um, yeah. The president's personal attorney agreed to test, like volunteered to testify before Congress. Um, there, no one needs to orchestrate that. Uh, the wind could blow, and they would have all gotten in the room at the same time. Had uh, after that offer, um, I think it's finding boogeymen. I think it's trying. Uh, I mean, there was, there was. They wanted to undermine both Cohen's credibility and the whole hearing. The whole thing was a farce. And we saw a really strong statement from Cummings at the end who said, you keep saying this is my first hearing. It's not true. This is uh, we had many hearings before this. Before this one. Yeah. 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 Um, And and it was just. um, In fact, I forget now what their first hearing. Prescription drugs. Exactly. Thank you. Prescription drugs. Yeah. Um, So it was just him saying, like, look, like, uh, it was just an effort to say this is all a farce. None of this uh, should be happening, Um, which is, look, in stark contrast to the hearings we saw under Republican control into Benghazi. Democrats did not try uh, to make those hearings the entire existence of them a farce. They said, look, what we need to be doing is not worried about Hillary Clinton, you know, whether or not she wrote an email at this time or was asleep. We need to be worried about is like long term security issues, what do we take away from this, how do we move forward in a way that makes sure less Americans that are, are And that our embassies are safe around right. the world. Right. Um, and, and, and Republicans did not try to replicate that tax. Instead, they were like, we'll just argue that none of us should be here and, and this shouldn't be happening. Well, And of course, so the question about Lanny Davis, did he orchestrate it, meaning it was all just a political thing, as if uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings could be used as a puppet that way. I mean, he's a very strong man in his own right. And then the Tom Steyer thing, of course, was to try to imply that this whole thing was was just part of the Democratic plan toward building a case for impeachment, where which Nancy Pelosi and the leadership have gone to great pains to stay as far away from that as they can. Absolutely, there. And, and look, there's nothing that got us 
um, on, a, on, a, on a fast track to impeachment yesterday. To be clear, they are still very uh, reluctant to, to even talk about it. Um, and look, p- impeachment is a political process. You need the will of the people overwhelmingly to do it. Uh, it is not a legal or a criminal process. It is quite different. Um, and, and Democrats know that. They also know there's an election. There's a natural process to decide the president shouldn't be in office anymore if that's what the American people think. Um, so, so no. And, and, and look, Steyer's become a boogeyman. He's become a guy that the Republicans like to hold up and say he's the problem. All right. I'm going to circle back to where we started. You, you, you broke a story this morning that uh, the clamor maybe for Joe Biden to run that he was uh, hoping for uh, may not necessarily be there uh, among Democrats. Beto O'Rourke yesterday said he is not going to run against John Cornyn for Senate. What's the other shoe, and when is that going to drop? I mean, the other shoe presumably would be that he runs for president. He could still run for governor um, at some point, so don't count that out entirely. Um, I don't have any exclusive sources on that. Uh, but look, the, you know, he had a, he felt a clamor. There was a clamor for O'Rourke. I talked to sources who told me that he needed some convincing. Maybe he has been convinced. Um, but that would still be a very hard fight. Uh, you know, charisma gets you so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, experience and, and being able to point to accomplishments also is going to be needed in a field this big. Someone with more experience and more accomplishments, perhaps, uh, uh, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, I saw a story this morning that he is staffing up and putting a team together, which indicates he may be close. I saw him this past weekend. Uh, he uh-huh. seems very close. I would say very, very close. Um, and and is uh, a friend of Tom Steyer. So there is a, an interesting alliance there. Um, both uh, very concerned about climate change. Climate change, yeah. Uh, and, and look, we haven't seen the governors yet. So uh, no. Jay Inslee, uh, Hickenlooper uh, in Colorado, also likely very imminently running. Uh, Jeff Bullock uh, in Montana. Who, Steve Bullock. Steve it? Bullock. Steve Bullock. Yeah. Uh, Bullock, who has to get through uh, a legislative session that ends in April. Uh-huh. Um, those are three uh, two-term executives who uh, are going to be likely tossing their hats in the ring. It's going to change the contours, I think, of that field a little bit. Uh, and one more, Terry McCullough from Virginia, whom I saw last Friday, who seemed very close. Uh, we I, could I'm... see four governors. I always like to also remind everyone of Bashir from Kentucky, a Democrat and a red yeah. state who implemented the ACA. Um, he has told me repeatedly he's not going to run, but uh, if, if the field gets really big, someone like that could also touch the head in. All right. Come back and we'll spend more time on 2020 next time, okay? <laughs> okay? All right. Hey, Ginger, it's always good to see you. Thanks so much for your good work and for your time this morning at Reuters.com, Reuters.com. Eliza Collins, we'll take a look at what's happening on the Hill, the big vote on gun safety yesterday. Congressional reporter for USA joining us next. This is the Bill Press Show. Thursday, February 28, rolling along here with the Bill Press Show. With uh, On a very, very busy news day, we've been spending a lot of time talking about, most of our time talking about the Michael Cohen hearing yesterday. He testifies again today behind closed doors, so there won't be much as, as much uh, theatrics. Behind closed doors with the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, And there was other action in the Congress yesterday. To wrap it all up for us, Eliza Collins from USA that joins us here in studio. Eliza, nice to see you. Welcome back. Nice to see you, too. Thank you. And uh, I just want to mention one other. uh, By the way, there was a summit going on yesterday (laughs) uh, between the president of the United States and the leader of North Korea all the way over in Hanoi. Um, I woke up this morning, looked at my iPhone to find out the whole thing. No deal. Fell apart. I mean, both of them were saying, 
We feel very good about the chances here. They expected to sign a historic agreement whereby North Korea would agree to um, destroy some of their nuclear production facilities in return for lifting of some of the sanctions by the United States against North Korea. Uh, that deal was in the works. Um, maybe there wasn't enough preparation for it. Maybe there's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, North Korea wouldn't agree to um, destroy the facilities the United States uh, listed. Um, they wouldn't go that far. So Donald Trump did what he said you have to do in the art of the deal and got up and walked out. Uh, he told reporters yesterday in a very hastily arranged news conference, uh, basically, this is what you got to do. you got to be willing to walk away. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work, and we'll see. But we had to uh, walk away from that particular suggestion. As a couple of the uh, President George W. Bush's foreign policy experts uh, mentioned this morning, I forgot exactly which ones they were, that this is why you do months and months of preparation before you get the two leaders together so that this doesn't happen. Donald Trump takes the different approach he did in Singapore and he did here. We don't need all that preparation. Just get me in the same room with Kim Jong-un and we'll be able to fix it. So we just go direct to the presidential level. All this other stuff he says is unnecessary. I think yesterday proved uh, maybe there is a little to be said for some experience, some expertise, some time, some preparation before a summit. And Kim Jong-un's negotiating team is very experienced. Um, and then we have to remember, this is a president who has an extraordinary turnover in his cabinet, his advisors. So the team that was with him today is not necessarily the team that was with him last time. You know, some of the same players might yeah. have been there, but they're, these were people that didn't have government experience. They weren't probably like the George Bush advisors talking who came from years of other government experience. Yeah, had worked in other administra- Republican administrations, right? There is that foreign policy priesthood, if you will, in Washington, D.C. Democrats uh, have their people they call on, Republicans have people they call on. They go from administration to administration. They may be part of the establishment, but they know what they're doing. Right. Trump's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who I believe was in the room, is a former backbencher Freedom Caucus member, you know, turned OMB director, turned chief of staff. Those are Zero the type of people policy right, he has around him. Yeah, I saw him sitting at the table here, so I'm thinking, what's, you know, what's he doing He's there? He's chief of staff right um, now. So uh, in addition to the Michael Cohen hearing yesterday, um, a big vote on gun safety. Yeah, the first major piece of gun legislation in over 25 years passed the House yesterday uh, during the Michael Cohen break, yeah, <laughs> basically yeah. as symbolic. They had to break the vote, and that was they, that, right. what they it were voting on. Right, it was this moment. And um, it's a big deal. Vote 240 to 190. Yes, I believe they had eight Republicans cross over and two Democrats voted with Republicans. So Democrats were very united. Republicans were pretty united as well. Um, basically, it'll expand background checks. There's mm-hmm. another vote today um, that will close the so-called Charleston loophole, which makes it so that right now, if a background check happens, you have three days. And if within those three days it doesn't happen, they can sell you the gun. Mm-hmm. So this would expand it to at least 10 days, possibly longer. Um, it's probably expected to get a similar number of people. But 
overall, those two bills will expand background checks, which is a big deal for Democrats who in the past did not prioritize this issue, but ran on it in 2018 and have decided that this is one of the first major pieces of legislation they want to push. And it was a uh, a winning issue for them in 2018. Totally obviously. a winning issue. And an interesting thing is that <clears> this <throat> was the first election that pro-gun control groups outspent gun rights groups. So groups like Giffords and Moms Demand Action outspent the NRA for the first time. Uh, Gabby Giffords was there a couple of days ago on the Hill when this bill was introduced or when, when they had a news conference about the bill been introduced before, right? Yeah. So Gabby Giffords is the former congresswoman, was shot when she was in Congress, um, has had a very tough recovery, but has basically become this gun control activist, has started this major organization with her husband, Mark Kelly, who is now mm -hmm. running for Senate in Arizona yeah. against Martha McSally. Um, he has stepped away from the organization, actually, and they said they're not oh, going to touch uh -huh. his race. But Gabby Giffords has become one of the leading voices on this issue. So she was there when they introduced the background check bill. They actually introduced it on the eight-year anniversary mm. of the shooting. Oh, that's right. And yeah. she has Floor privileges. So it was quite a moment. She went down to the floor and introduced the bill. Um, and then another interesting moment was Steve Scalise, who let, totally, let me just interrupt you. Yeah, for interrupt just a me. Second, because uh, Gabby Giffords uh, hear her statement the other day about the legislation. Yeah. Now is the time to come together, be responsible. Democrats, Republicans, everyone. Yep. You had a chance to talk to her, too. I right? did. So when she gave that speech, I was with her on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. um, I spent the day with her Tuesday. So that was one day before the House voted on the first overhaul. Mm -hmm. And we spent the day basically in the morning. She was with this group called the Courage Fellows. So it's 28 high school and college students who have been affected by gun violence. So there were Parkland students. There were students from the Santa Fe High School shooting in Texas and then other students who have just taken this issue on. So she was with them in the morning. It was quite a moment because it was kind of like these two generations yeah, of yeah. gun control activists. And I have a big story coming out about it later this morning on okay, USA Today. Okay, right. USA, USA Today, USAToday.com. Yeah, but it was this moment that really, I think, illustrated the shift in how Democrats have handled guns over the last decade. When Giffords was in Congress, guns wasn't an issue she dealt with. Um, it wasn't an issue the Democratic Party dealt with. I mean, Democrats had the White House, the Senate, and the House, a supermajority in the Senate. And health care was the issue they focused on. They didn't bring up gun legislation. Oh, believe me, I made that case <laughs> at the White House. I kept pushing the White House on that. You've got all this power. Why aren't you doing right. something about Assault weapons, the assault weapons ban, bringing back the assault weapons ban. No, you're right. They didn't touch no it. Did not so touch now it. it is really significant that this is one of the first major pieces of legislation that Democrats have decided to move on. I think the party has decided that this is something they want to push for. It's a pretty modest bill. Mm -hmm. um, but the hope, they say, is to get Republicans, like Giffords just said, to get them on board more than those eight and to pressure Republicans in the Senate, where the bill is headed next, and I don't imagine it will see the light of day. But Democrats say that they hope that having this bill out there, having it passed on a bipartisan basis, though not tons of Republicans, will put pressure on some of the Republicans in the Senate to say, hey, Mitch McConnell, you should bring this up. Just, just at least the, this one. St I mean, background checks is almost what eighty, eighty-five percent. More than ninety percent every year. Yeah, yeah. Republicans and Democrats, gun owners. It's a really bipartisan issue, and so Democrats are hoping that 
people start advocating for their You started issues. to mention Steve Scalise, another victim of gun yes. violence, who has had a remarkable, re- remarkable yes. recovery himself. I mean, I remember, because I had a friend who worked in the emergency room with hospital where he was, who thought, he said, they may be saying he's okay. He is not okay. He is really in bad shape. Wow, yeah. Didn't so think that he was even going to make it. But r- here he is, and he's here back he in is. the leadership. Uh, so, of course, he would vote for a bill like this, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> He, um, I talked to him actually for this story, basically comparing, you know, a similar thing happened to both of them. They both as- survived assassination attempts right. that left them, you know, very mm-hmm. badly injured. Both have had remarkable recoveries. Giffords has gone on to be a total activist on the issue, and Scalise has doubled down. I mean, he says that his view on the Second Amendment has not changed. He is a Republican from Louisiana, and he was always an big supporter. He has remained a supporter. He says that this bill, background checks, it wouldn't have stopped the shooter in his case from getting the gun. Um, He and other Republicans basically say that this bill would punish gun owners, um, responsible gun owners, and would not stop all shootings. Oh, yeah. By having to get a background check, oh, you're really being tough on gun owners, right? Or people who want to buy another gun. I mean, it's just such an absurd argument, but... I just want to, for the record, get where Steve Scalise is. But I do want to point out really quick before yes. we move on from this issue, Republicans did get a win yesterday when this bill mm-hmm. passed, which yeah, is, they, was significant because they used this wonky procedure called the motion to recommit, which is basically a messaging procedure the minority uses all the time. And usually doesn't work. Right. The majority party does not usually fall for it. So the Republicans yesterday introduced basically this motion to recommit that would make it so that if an undocumented immigrant tried to buy a gun, they would get reported to ICE. And there were 26, I believe, Democrats. They're all moderate Democrats, mostly freshmen, um, who voted for that. And basically what that did was it amended the bill. So that bill now has that provision. Um, And that is an embarrassment to Democratic leadership because they should, in the past, have been able to basically keep their caucus from voting for those things, even if it makes them uncomfortable because they say it's just messaging, don't fall for it. This new class who came in in red and purple districts have now twice voted for Republican um, motions to recommit. And they say it's because they are trying to work across the aisle. They're moderates, and this is a moderate amendment. Um, The bill still passed. People still voted for it. But uh, so Democrats got the final word, but it was a big deal. It was the first time Hmm. in like a decade. And Republicans have had had it happen twice this year. And we're in February. Sounds like the uh, Democratic whips have to do a little better job of keeping these people in line here. Right. They may they may have they probably were whipping the background check bill, but maybe not. the yeah. Yeah. MTR. Sleep at the switch there. Okay, so the rookies, another mistake. Um, at the same time yesterday, um, also uh, never totally overshadowed by the Michael Cohen hearing, uh, was the summit in Hanoi, but also introduction of a big piece of legislation by Pramila Jayapal from Washington, which has been talked about a lot. Almost everybody talks about Medicare for all. Yes. And she's got the bill. She's got the bill. She is a Progressive Caucus co-chair. Mm-hmm. This is really significant, not necessarily because it is going to pass, but because there is now a piece of legislation that Democrats who support this can point to and that Republicans who don't support this can also point to. 
Um, we have seen the 2020 Democrats. Does, does she take does the legislation? Do you know? I haven't had a chance to to, to read it. Is it like phased in? You know, Medicare, then down to 55, then down to 50, boom, 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 or is it just Medicare for all? So I haven't read it either. Yeah, Yesterday okay. was crazy, but this the what I have right in front of me is saying that it this is actually a faster transition than what Senator Sanders envisions in his proposal. Whoa. Okay. And so. Sanders' proposal was called pretty, pretty revolutionary. Pretty much right. Yeah. So I don't know the details, yeah. but um, it's a significant. It totally. is a piece of legislation that is basically going to make lawmakers go on the record. I don't know if Pelosi will put it up for a vote, but we have heard that there will be hearings on Medicare for All. This is the piece of legislation. And I think this is where you start to see Democrats split, the Democratic caucus split. Because I covered the election, and I covered a lot of these majority makers, um, and they ran very far from that issue. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how many of them stick to that. In terms of, um, you've got to say um, that the worry was, or and the charge was, that Democrats taking over the House, it was going to be all impeachment, 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 yeah. impeachment, you know, uh, anti-Trump, anti-Trump, anti-Trump. Um, well, there have been some oversight hearings, mm-hmm. but um, at the same time, the legislative agenda Democrats have been moving with, I mean, H.R. 1, which is all about voting rights. Right. Um, voting rights. It's a, campaign like a finance government reform. corruption, yeah. yeah right. Lobbying bans, that sort of stuff. Right. That, that's that been moving. Uh, we saw the gun thing yesterday, mm-hmm. this Medicare for all thing, the Green New Deal. Right. Which is a resolution, not not right. actually. And I don't know legis- if that's going to move. Legislation, <laughs> but yet. it's out there. But in terms of big new ideas, I mean, they're popping out. They're certainly working on policy. Yeah, and we have seen Democratic leadership made a conscious decision once they won the majority because they won the majority on members that need to have wins. They need to have bipartisan wins that the president can support, or at least something like the background check bill that are pretty moderate bills that you know have some republicans on board and they can point to mitch mcconnell as mm-hmm. someone who's not bringing it up and so democrats made a very conscious decision to focus on those first and even after the michael cohen yes- hearing yesterday we heard nancy pelosi saying you know she wouldn't touch impeachment yeah i talked to alexandria ocasio-cortez who is no fan of trump's um midway through the hearing and we basically asked, you know, is this enough for impeachment? Are these documents enough for impeachment? This was yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. yes. And she said, kind of like squirmed out of it, you know, that, well, we have to review the documents. I do think this is significant. But she didn't say yes. Mm-hmm. And I think the real message is let the Mueller report come down. Yeah. Let that speak for itself. And in the meantime, show the people that voted you in that you can actually govern because many of these candidates ran on a promise to bring order back to Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, she's been pretty careful about not jumping on the impeachment bandwagon. Yes, bandwagon. she has. Not I all mean, of her colleagues have, but but really the overwhelming yeah, majority I mean, of Democrats have stayed quiet on this. When you think about the people who are like way out there on impeachment, I mean, you can almost count them on one hand, right? I mean, fingers on one hand. I, I mean, it's so. certainly it's Al Green, right? Brad Sherman. Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib and Maxine Waters. Yeah. I think those are the most vocal. And even yeah. Maxine has sort of... She's sta- kind of got, yeah, gotten she's a got, little quieter. She has now that she's got the financial 
Service Committee or whatever, right? Yeah. No, I think the message is very clear from leadership. They can't stop everyone from doing it, but it is saying if you want to be taken seriously, if this does come up, Mm -hmm. it needs to be, you need to have a case, basically. Right. Okay. Now, let's not forget when we're talking about um, big votes, um, there was also the vote earlier this week uh, on the emergency declaration. Yes. And... uh, the vote in the House overwhelmingly to, um, and what was it, 13 Republicans joined? 13 Republicans. Right. So again, uh, bipartisan. To, to nullify the emergency declaration, which now moves over to the Senate and? And Mitch McConnell has to vote on it. So unlike the background check bill, this is a privileged resolution, basically from where it stems from, means that if it is introduced, it has to be voted on, and it has to be voted on with 18 days. So McConnell can't slow walk this. Mm -hmm. Um, We're already a few days in, right? And it's calendar days, too, so I think it includes weekends. Mm. Um, And it is not subject to the 60-vote filibuster. So this thing really could pass in the Senate because there are 47 Democrats. They're all expected to vote for it. I have not heard otherwise. Um, And so that means they need four Republicans. There have been many more than four Republicans who have said they didn't like the emergency declaration for a variety of reasons, the overwhelming one being the precedent it would set. Three so far have said that they will vote with Democrats on the issue. So Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, who are not really a surprise, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who is facing a a reelection in a purple state. Um, So but you have to imagine there are some other Republicans facing reelections in purple states or there are Republicans who have spoken out against the national emergency and are sort of institutionalists. So I'm thinking of the people that voted to end the shutdown. Johnny Isaacson, Lamar Alexander. I haven't heard where they are on this issue, but they are people who in the past have voted sort of away from some of what Trump has tried to do. Or surprise, surprise, some Republicans who may have read and actually believe in the Constitution of the United States and the separation of powers. Well, many of them said that they, yeah, they disagreed with the national emergency before Trump called it. So it'll be interesting to see which ones of those actually stick to that I mean, I thought Tom Tillis surprised me too, but it was a principled stand based on two things separation of powers and setting a precedent for other future presidents. Right. And including a democratic and president. And that is what we heard over and over and over before the president declared the national emergency. Republicans saying that they worried a democratic president would then call a national <laughs> emergency on they mentioned climate change, guns. So they said this would set a certain kind of precedent. Um so this will probably not probably it is a possibility that this passes out of the Senate. Trump has said I'll veto it. So mm-hmm. really, but it will be a rebuke of the president. And it'll be, he's getting increasingly more of those, especially with foreign policy. But if on a bipartisan basis, the Congress sends legislation that says, we don't agree with your national emergency declaration, um, you know, it's embarrassing. Right. Um, does the, the, um, the damaging stuff that came the combination of the damaging stuff that came out about uh, the president yesterday from the Michael Cohen hearing and the collapse of the summit in Hanoi, if you add those two, did they do anything to erode uh, you know, Trump's power or influence uh, with working with the Congress? I'm not sure what his power or influence working with the Congress already was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. I think... I think what Michael little Cohen, bit he might have had left. Michael Cohen said some 
you know, very big things. But Michael Cohen also is lied to Congress the last time. And I think no, there is no denying that there are questions about his credibility. You can argue he has nothing to lose and he came across as a credible witness and he brought documents. And that's really what Democrats were arguing yesterday. And that all very well might be true. But there are questions about his credibility. And this summit in North Korea, I could see some lawmakers saying, well, he didn't take a bad deal. So I think it depends who you like. You know, mm -hmm. if you believe the president, then you're going to probably continue to believe him. They might be uncomfortable with some things, but Republicans are uncomfortable a lot with things the president does. But it's still, I mean, in the, in the sense, they haven't, I guess his relations with Congress are very com complicated, aren't they? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say I'm on the Hill and Mike Pence is there probably once a week, sort of as the liaison for the White House coming in. He was there the other day smoothing over the emergency declaration, urging Republicans during lunch not to vote for it. Um, that's who Congress deals with a lot. And I know, like, Susan Collins deals with Ivanka in some things. I mean, Trump has a very complicated relationship with a lot of lawmakers. Right. I mean, they do generally support him, but I think I, you get the feeling that more and more of them are saying, you know, this guy could be toxic and we, you know, have to provide make some distance as, as well. I think it's complicated because the president is still really popular with the base. Yeah. And so if they are a conservative Republican, they might not like the conservative Republicans. Let's use the national emergency are very uncomfortable because that's against the Constitution, they say. Mm -hmm. But then when he does it, they it's hard to cross him when right. they're. Their supporters still support him. Yeah, except for those three so far at any rate. Hey, Liza, it's so good to see you. So Thanks for coming in. You. Busy, busy time. you got to get back there, I'm sure. The things will be popping again today. Uh, you can follow Eliza Collins and the big story you've got coming out today at usatoday.com about Gabby Giffords. Check that out and then come back this and see us tomorrow. We'll be looking Bill for you. Fresh show.